Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on prn.fm, Mondays at, as I take to say, 10 a.m., but that's New York time, and we are global, so it could be any time wherever you are, and you can catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N is an Nancy, dot com. And today we have something special, so... If you're on prn.fm, that means you're on your computer, and you can right now jump over to Facebook and see us live on whatever, (laughs) video. Uh, So if you go to Facebook, and then on Facebook, search for Progressive Radio Network, you'll find our channel. Click on that, and you'll see me. I think I'm in Hawaii. Uh, So, uh, and uh, sometimes on this show, I play audio clips of uh, the topic we're addressing. And today we're going to experiment with some video clips. While we're at this uh, techie stuff, I want to remind you that um, you can also get us on your telephone. 888-874-4888. So that's... 888-874-4888. And I have, uh, you know, pretty much given up on what's on the radio, even in my car. And I just plug my phone in. I have an old car, so it doesn't Bluetooth. But I just plug in auxiliary. And I've got dozens of books on my phone. And if I am listening to something on the radio, I get better reception on my phone than I do on my radio. So if you're in your car and you're using your smartphone to uh, follow us on prn.fm, you can also use that phone number. I don't know which would be better or why, but you can uh, you can try both. And one more bit of housekeeping while we're at it. Um, no, actually, I got that wrong. That phone number I just gave is to call in. And if you want to listen on your phone, try 712-775-6850. So that should get you into us on your phone. Anyway, uh, if you're on PRN, hi. And today I want to talk about something I've been following. And that's the topic of exponential growth. And, you know, we... Um, There's a temptation among, what, pundits, social critics, technology critics, to think and say we're in an exceptional, unique moment. And so I'm going to say that. And we are uh, in the midst of something that Ray Kurzweil calls a singularity, and and he talks about exponential growth. And I'm also going to mention Peter Diamantes, who talks about exponential growth. And the world is changing in a way that we're just not thinking about. And so I want to try to describe that and then listen to a bit of some people, uh, some video clips of some people. But before we do that, 
What do we mean by exponential growth? And the most famous example is Moore's Law, right? So I teach, so, you know, raise your hands. Who's heard of Moore's Law? And uh, uh, hopefully everybody's heard of it. And it has an actual technical meaning, but very roughly, generally, it means the capability of computers doubles every 18 months. Now, whether that's the capability of the CPU, the main chip, or of the actually its speed has not been growing recently. They they went above uh, two or three megahertz and they discover they melt. And we had four megahertz for a while and we haven't seen that in a long time. They backed off. What they're doing instead is adding more cores. So most chips today are two core, a lot are four core. And if you get a high-end computer, you're doing video editing or something, you can get a six, eight, or 12 core, which actually means there are six, eight, or 12 supercomputers in your computer. But anyway, uh, a lot of this exponential growth has moved over to the graphics chip. So, we're, you know, we're watching videos on our phones or our computers. And a lot of it's also moved over to memory. So that memory is, we just have massive memory. We don't worry about memory anymore. <laughs> In school, I use an old computer, and I'm, it's always jamming up because, you know, I'll put a couple of PowerPoints on it, and I run out of memory. But uh, that shouldn't happen on most computers today. You just have a huge amount. You used to have to clean out your memory occasionally. Uh, we don't worry about that hardly anymore. But anyway, um, but this exponential growth is applicable more generally and uh, we'll look at Peter Diamantis later, but he likes to give a couple of uh, examples. I'll repeat one of his, and that is the difference between 30 linear and exponential steps. So if I were to get up in the studio and I were to take, I'd have to go out the door, uh, 30 steps, and they're linear. Each step is one meter or three feet. And... Okay, where would I be at the end of 30 steps? In the end, the answer is 30 feet away. Now suppose I were to take 30 exponential steps. And first step would be one meter. This is imaginary, of course. Second tap step is two meters. The next is four. The next is eight. The next is 16, etc. And you think, well, you know, that might add up. And you know, well, well, how far would I go? Well, maybe I'd circle the block. Well, it turns out I'd circle the earth 27 times. So this is, uh, this is a whole different world. So does that really happen? Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> have, you, have you looked at YouTube, Wikipedia recently? Have you looked at, um, you know, have you looked at Google Image? I use Google Image. I, I I grab those images and I put them in my PowerPoint. I haven't used that. If you go to Google, you do search. It's, it defaults to search all. But you can click on images and then you're just searching. They got images on there. I teach architecture. So if I need images of the Pantheon in Rome, inside, outside, close-ups, the dome, the oculus, the uh, the column details. It there are hundreds and hundreds of images of every um, specific area I would want to look at in the painting. The plans, the sections, 
And I, I'm still unloading hundreds and literally thousands of books, many of which I got years ago, you know, sort of coffee table books, to uh, then put on a copy stand and make slides from for my lectures. And I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, I don't use slides. I use PowerPoint. But beyond that, what I do is I just go to Google Image and grab an image. Well, I've been watching this since, you know, for about 10, 12 years. I've been using PowerPoint, (laughs) switching over from slides. And I've just been watching the number and the quality of the images just, you know, hugely increase. I don't know how often they're doubling, but (laughs) they're doubling. And it used to be, you know, when I go to show them, they'll pixelate their crummy quality. Well, now most of them are very high resolution, very high quality, and details of whatever it is I'm looking for. So these things are growing all around us. And so that's part of our exponential world. We'll hear more about what that means for our lives and for the um, world we're living in. But uh, I want to think about how we think about this. And I want to quote one of my favorite people. By the way, you know, another another thing that we're seeing is that anybody you're interested in, today we're going to listen to Peter Thiel, uh, Ray Kurzweil, and Peter Diamantes. And what I do is I just go to... I go to YouTube, put in their name, and I go to filter, and I say, give me just the most the recent month, because I've listened to their stuff, you know, periodically, and I want to get the new thing. Is there anything new? Is there anything new? Another favorite of mine is Stephen Wolfram. Is he given a new lecture recently? So go to YouTube, uh, put in the filter of the most recent month or six months or year, whatever you want, and you get their recent talk. So I follow these people. And Peter Thiel, we know from the movie The Social Network, he was the first person to financially back Facebook. And before that, he was a founder of PayPal and some other things. He's one of the backers of Elon Musk's uh, uh, Tesla, stuff like that. So he's a multi-billionaire venture capitalist. He wrote a book, From Zero to One, very interesting book. And he's got really profound insight into the way the world works. What's going on with technology? What's going on with technological change? And uh, what does he look for when someone comes to pitch a company? It's sort of like what you see on Shark Tank. It's the, these people live like that. You know, people come in all day. They get 20 minutes to pitch their company to the venture capitalists, and they pick the ones they want to pursue, look into more, and then maybe back. His favorite question is, what do you believe that nobody else believes? Do you have, you, do you have any original thoughts? Because if you think you're going to start a company that's what everybody else is doing, that might not be the best strategy. So let's sort of look at, the, at how he presents this. And I selected a video clip. So let's have our engineer go to clip one and see how this technology works. Important or perhaps more valuable. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think there's this, uh, this very strange phenomenon in uh, Silicon Valley where, uh, where a lot of the most uh, talented uh, uh, start, startups, a lot of the great startups, seem to be run by people who are suffering from a mild form of Asperger's. And I think, I think we need to always turn this fact around 
and uh, view this as an indictment of our whole society. Because what does it say about our society when anyone who does not suffer from Asperger's, who is socially well adapted, will be talked out of all of their original creative ideas before they're even fully formed, who will sense this is a little bit too weird, that's a little bit strange, that sounds a little bit crazy, people are looking at me in a weird way. Um, and I think this is, uh, this is something that we must all uh, realize is, is sort of a deeply endemic problem. They've done these studies at Harvard Business School, which I think you can often think of the business school student as a profile in anti-Asperger's. Sort of so uh, I recommend you go search on Peter Thiel, listen to the whole talk, and uh, I'll be a little critical here. <laughs> It probably doesn't matter which talk you go to because he covers a lot of the same material. But what he's saying there is that uh, people who, okay, uh, I know a few people with Asperger's, mild Asperger's. They're very functional, but, you know, they're compulsive and, and maybe they're not that socially adept. And his point there is that's the kind of person you need to start a company to be successful because to be successful, it has to be original. And people with Asperger's are not socially pressured, because they're not social, to do what everybody else is doing. They're able to do something new, different, and unique, because they're not plugged into what everybody else is saying. He was about to go on there, and, and you can look it up, to talk about uh, a study was done of Harvard Business School and how they're all lemmings. They all go in the same direction. How in the 80s, they all wanted to go into junk bonds just before, you know, that crashed. And then in the uh, uh, 90s, they all wanted to go into the late 90s. They all wanted to go into technology just before the 2000 technology crash. And then they all wanted to go into housing mortgages just before that crashed. So, you know, so why is that? Because people in business school tend to be social, gregarious, um, sort of uh, checking with other people about what they should do, what's hot. Uh, people with Asperger's just go do their own thing and uh, might be actually able to do something original. So, okay, so we're beginning our show today by suggesting that we want to be able to think originally. We want to not be necessarily following the crowd. And in doing that, we're going to come up with some interesting thoughts. So back to this notion of exponential growth. Um, there's something called the singularity. You might have heard that term. And the, the notion of the singularity... It was proposed by a science fiction, a futurist and science fiction owner, Werner Vinge. And, but it's more or less today associated with Ray Kurzweil. So Ray Kurzweil is an, well, he's probably, I would say, the leading futurist today. And uh, interesting character. He is, let me just look up uh, his Wikipedia page. Uh, computer scientist, inventor, futurist, and he developed a lot of stuff. He is the principal inventor of the first charge couple device flatbed scanner. He invented the scanner. So if, you know, you have a, a printer, uh, a printer Xerox fax, um, 
the scanner on that thing is his invention. Scanners cost, you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now it comes free with your inkjet printer that costs $60. He did the first um, optical character recognition. So he heard about Stevie Wonder, who was blind, and Stevie Wonder couldn't read a phone book. So Kurzweil developed this thing the size of, uh, oh, I don't know, a paperback book, and you pull it down uh, in the days when we once had uh, telephone books. You pull it down the column of a telephone book, and it reads it out. It recognizes the characters, uh, changes them into text, and then reads the text. So if you, uh, you know, you talk to your, you can dictate an email to your smartphone or you can um, take a typewritten page, put it in your scanner, do optical character recognition. That's his technology. So he developed that technology. And in the 1980s, he was, he accepted what everybody was saying, which is you can't predict the future. You know, who, who knows what the, those people in Silicon Valley are going to come up with. And then he said, you know, maybe you can. And the one thing we could predict is Moore's Law. So in 1964, Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, observed that, hey, um, we at Intel, the chips we make every, at that time he said 18 months, now they say two years, Every, let's just say two years, the number of uh, transistors we can get onto a chip, same size, same price, doubles every two years. And, hmm. And then what happened is year after year, it continued to be true. So this is not a law of physics. This is an observation of technology. But it also became a mandate that computer chip companies said, you know what? If we're going to make a chip and it's going, to, it's going to come on the market in four years, it better have four times the capability of the chips we're making today. Because if it only has two times, our competitor is going to have four times and no one's going to buy our chip. So it, it, it became a um, uh, self-fulfilling prediction. <clears throat> in other words, it was a prediction but the chip companies had to do it uh, to stay competitive. And it's been right, decades now, and it's been never missed a beat. It's been true continually. So Ray Kurzweil, back in the 80s, he said, let's observe that. And he says, you know what? It's not just about chips. It's about anything in electronics. We go back to 1900, there were no chips. But they, at that time, we had physical relays phone company used physical relays to, uh, and then in the 1950s, they started using vacuum tubes, 1940s and 50s. And then uh, then they developed transistors, and then finally, they developed a chip. Well, what he observed was, if you go back to 1900, this doubling from 1900 on was absolutely right on. And so he wrote a book called the Age, uh, I think it was The Age of Intelligent Machines. Then he wrote a book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. Uh, then he wrote a book, The Singularity is Near. And each time what he did was uh, he said, this is what's going to happen. And then 
He went back and, you know, uh, 15 years later, he'd write another book. He'd say, this is what I said 15 years ago is going to happen. Guess what? I was right on. Because what he would do is he'd say, okay, this is, you know, given this doubling, this is what the computer's going to be capable of in two years, four years, 10 years. When it's that powerful, what might it do? might do speech recognition, it might do video, it might do so that it was uh, when Google came along with their particular algorithm for search, uh, two years earlier, it, the computer didn't have enough power to do that. Two years later, someone else would have done it so that he dead on predicts the timing on these things. So anyway, uh, the singularity is if you project out this doubling of computer capability, in 20 years, one chip will have as much circuitry as the human brain. In 40 years, one chip will have as much circuitry of all the brains of all the people who have ever lived. Hmm. Uh, what will it be able to do at that point? <laughs> well, the singularity is when uh, artificial intelligence exceeds human intelligence and the two merge. That's one of the definitions of the singularity. If you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll find there are other definitions. But that's one of the definitions. So with that little background on Ray Kurzweil and what he's up to, let's uh, take a look at a little video clip. If you're not on Facebook, you'll be able to hear uh, the voice. And let's see what Ray Kurzweil has to say about all this. Talk about the future of intelligence, where we're going to enhance our natural biological intelligence, which we've been doing through education, through artificial intelligence. And first, I want to share a surprising discovery I made in 1981. I was trying to figure out how to time my inventions, and I started with the common wisdom that you cannot predict the future. But I thought if I uh, plotted a lot of data, being an engineer, visualized it in the right way, I could make some educated guesses. And I made a surprising discovery. There's one aspect of the future that's remarkably predictable. And that is that the price performance and capacity, not of everything and not of every technology, but of information technology, proceeds in a predictable manner. And I had the price performance of computing, calculations per second, per constant dollar, from the 1890 American census through 1980 in 1981. It was a very smooth curve, and I projected it out to 2050. We're now 34 years later in 2015, and it's exactly where it should be. And that predictable trajectory is exponential, meaning every fixed period of time, it, it doubles. It's about every year, uh, and, that, and even that speed is, is speeding up. And exponential growth is actually very different than our intuition. If you wonder why do we have a brain, it is to make predictions about the future so we can predict the consequences of our actions, the consequences of inaction. But those built-in predictors are linear. You know, we track an animal in the field 10,000 years ago. We didn't expect it to speed up. We expected it to go a constant trajectory. That's a linear projection that worked very well. That became hardwired in our brains. The reality of information technology is, is progresses by doubling every period. So what's the difference? A linear projection, that's our intuition, goes one, two, three. An exponential projection, that's the reality of information technology, goes one, two, four. Doesn't sound that different, but by the time you get to step 30, 
The linear projection, our intuition, is at 30. The exponential projection is at a billion. It's at 40, it's at a trillion. And this is not an idle speculation about the future. I mean, this little computer is actually several billion times more powerful per dollar than the computer I used when I went to MIT in the 1960s. And we're going to do that again the next 25 years. It'll be another several billion times more powerful. And it's all shrinking in size. This is 100,000 times smaller than that computer. Uh, in the 2030s, we'll have computers and robotic devices the size of blood cells. So let me show you just what this means. Uh, an exponential starts out very slowly, and then it explodes when it gets to what I call the knee of the curve. Here's that graph I had in the 19... 1981, I had it through 1980, this goes through 2010. Uh, that's a very smooth exponential progression, actually doubly exponential. This is a logarithmic graph. As you go up the graph, we're multiplying by actually every level is 100,000 times greater than the level below it. So this goes back to the 1890 census. This is literally billions of times, actually a trillion times, uh, greater computation that we can get for the same cost since the 1890 census. Now, people look at this and they go, oh, Moore's Law. But this started decades before Gordon Moore was even born. Moore's Law is just that part on the right having to do with chips. We were shrinking vacuum tubes in the 1950s to keep this going. Then that hit a wall. We couldn't shrink vacuum tubes anymore and keep the vacuum in 1959. So we went to the fourth paradigm. People have been talking about the end of Moore's Law, which will happen by 2020. Then it will go to the sixth paradigm which is three-dimensional computing that's already begun, that'll be in full swing by 2020, that'll keep this going for a very long time. But really, what's the most interesting thing about this graph? Uh, the fact that it's trillions times more computation at the same cost is interesting. But more interesting is where is World War I, World War II, the, the Cold War, the Great Depression? Uh, it's, this goes through thick and thin, through war and peace, through boom times and recessions. People said, well, it must have slowed down during the recent recession. That's not the case. It has a mind of its own. I have a mathematical treatment of why this is the case in my book, Singularity is Near, but really the empirical evidence is the most convincing. And it's, so Moore's Law is really just one paradigm among many within computation. And computation is just one type of information technology. Uh, and I don't have time to dwell on all of this, but you could buy one transistor for a dollar in 1968. You can buy 10 billion for a dollar today. They're actually better because they're smaller, so the electrons have less distance to travel, so the, the, they've sped up. The cost of a transistor cycle has come down by half every year. That's a 50% deflation rate. So this is really an economic th thesis having to do with the economics of abundance, which is what information technology presents, versus the economics of scarcity where we see inflation. People say, okay, that has to do with these strange little devices that we carry around, but, you know, that's just a very small part of the economy. But one industry, one area after another is going to be transformed from a, a non-information technology to becoming an information technology. The one that's undergoing that transformation right now is biology. Uh, the enabling factor for that was the Genome Project. That was a perfect exponential. Halfway through the project, we sequenced 1% of the genome. And mainstream critics said, I told you this wasn't going to work. Here you are, seven years, 1%. It's going to take 700 years, just like we said. That's linear thinking. My reaction at the time was, oh, we finished 1%. We're almost done, because 1% is only seven doublings from 100%. Indeed, it kept doubling. Seven years later, it was finished. 
That has continued since the end of the Genome Project. That first Genome cost a billion dollars. We're now down to a few thousand dollars with Genome. And it's not just sequencing. Our ability to understand this basically software, which is what it is, to model it, to simulate it, and to reprogram it, to change it, uh, to overcome disease and aging processes is also accelerating at an exponential pace. These technologies are now a thousand times more powerful than they were a decade ago when the Genome Project was completed. Now, people worry about deflation. We had massive deflation during the worldwide depression of the 1930s. There's a different reason, collapse of consumer confidence. But the concern is if I can get the same stuff, the same computation, the same communication, the same genetic sequencing that I could get a year ago for half the price, okay, I'll buy more, but am I going to double my consumption? Uh, after all, how much do I need? Aren't I going to saturate my ability to consume these resources? And if I don't double my consumption, uh, the size of the economy, not as measured in bits, bytes, and base pairs, but as measured in constant dollars or euros or uh, krona, uh, is going to shrink. For a variety of good reasons, that would be a bad thing. But that's actually not what we see. I mean, this is bits of memory chips. We have dozens of graphs like this. We actually more than double our consumption. And we've been doing that in every form of information technology. Well, and uh, highly recommend him. The, he's an interesting guy. He <clears throat> is in two fields, this uh, futurist technology, et cetera. And he's also uh, in health. He's one of these people whose father died of a heart attack. And I don't, I don't remember the exact a year. Maybe, you know, he was 54 years old or something. So Ray is worried, you know, is that going to happen to him? And he, he takes 200 pills a day. And he's not a nut. In other words, it's not random. What he does is he works with a doctor. He gets his blood tested every day. And he's keeping a whole bunch of uh, things in his blood at an ideal level. And the pills are to assure that that happens. So he's written a bunch of books in that area as well. One of them is How to Live Long Enough to Live Forever. <laughs> and the thinking is in, yeah, pick a number. In uh, 50 years, I'll be able to cure death. So, you know, 50 years, people won't die anymore. They'll, they'll find out what DNA is causing aging. You take a pill and, and it won't, you won't age, uh, however they do it. But what if you're uh, uh, 60 years old now? Um, in uh, 50 years, you'd be 110. What if you're 70? In 50 years, you'd be 120. You won't make it. <laughs> So he's got a book on how to make it to uh, the point where they cure death. Uh, and you can decide what you think about that. Uh, I'll do a show on that sometime in the future. I uh, just incidentally off uh, off topic here. I'm director of research for a project called Timeship. So it's like spaceship, only timeship. And if you go to timeship.org, O-R-G, you can find out about us. And it's a next-generation uh, cryonics facility and life extension research facility. So we're working with the leading people who are into this. And actually, for a long time, this was—we uh, were weird. <laughs> but now, this is just a couple months ago, a cover story in The New Yorker on— Silicon Valley billionaires who were into this. 
So there's, you know, that these people like uh, Larry Ellison of Oracle, Larry Page of uh, Google, etc., are saying, wait a minute, uh, we're getting older here. What's this aging thing? You know, because they were always young, right? Forever young. So if you start, you know, if you start Apple when you're 26, you know, you're going to be young for a long time, except until you're not. And so they said, wait a minute, we're getting older here. What is that? They go to their biotech friends and say, what's this aging thing? And said, well, you know, with your biological organism, you age. Well, how do you turn it off? And their biotech colleagues say, well, you know, nobody's really working on that. Medicine talks about how to get rid of disease, but it doesn't talk about how to get rid of aging. You know, well, they have creams to do away with wrinkles, but you're still going to age. And so we haven't noticed that many people, you know, living to be 120. Uh, It's still only a handful. And so then these billionaires say, well, what will it take to fix it? And their biotech friends say, well, I don't know, a billion dollars. Fine, here's a check. <laughs> anyway, that's, a, that's another show for the future. But, uh, so that, but that's the world we're moving into. And Ray Kurzweil is in that world. And speaking of uh, that world, uh, Google set up a division to do exactly that. It's called Clio, and they funded it at, uh, uh, I think, a half a billion dollars. And they're, they're, they're going to fix aging. Other people working on it also, including us uh, in our timeship project. So guess where Ray Kurzweil now is? He used to have his own companies, and now he's uh, chief engineer for Google. <laughs> so he well, – oh, uh, one of his books is How to Create a Mind. And a lot of people worked on that. It's called Artificial Intelligence. And it's had mm, uh, success in certain areas. Uh, voice recognition's getting better. Translation's getting better. But this original thing where artificial intelligence was supposed to... Um, be general artificial intelligence. In other words, a machine could problem solve. A computer could problem solve. You could pose any problem to it, and it would be as smart as or smarter than we are in solving the problem. Well, they got nowhere with that. Uh, and, you know, what they did is they said, well, the brain is a digital computer. As we make digital computers more powerful, they'll be like the brain. Well, the brain's not a digital computer. It's not how it works. And that's why they haven't gotten anywhere. Uh, But what they have done, uh, you know, they've done a lot of things. And so Ray Kurzweil is probably the most mm, capable thinker about all this. And he addresses it in his book, How to Create a Mind, and in his optical character recognition and stuff like that. He's had to actually do this. So he has actually success in this stuff, and he describes how it's going to be done. Well, one of the things that uh, this takes is it looks like, well, the, the, um, uh, one of the approaches some years ago was called neural nets, in which you would have computer chips emulating uh, networks of neurons, 
And it didn't work very well. It had a lot of promise, but it didn't really work. And it turns out the wallet didn't work because it needed a huge amount of computing power and a huge amount of raw data. We now have that. And who's got the most of that? Google. <laughs> They've got, you know, acres and acres and acres, hundreds of acres of these big buildings filled with servers. They got a lot of they got a lot of computer capacity. And they've been tracking everything we do online and every search we make. So they have a lot of data. And uh, this is going to maybe lead to certain things. One of the things it led through, um, <clears throat> if you're interested in this, there's a, uh, a cover story about two months ago in the New York Times on Google Translate. And Google's got about 100 languages, a little over 100 you can put anything in in any language and get it translated to any other language. So, you know, if you, if you are on a website and it's in whatever, French, Italian, Chinese, Vietnamese, what's that paragraph say? You grab it, put it in Google Translate to English. Oh, that's what it says, sort of. <laughs> it's a lot of gibberish. You know, you got to use a lot of human brain power to try to straighten out the, the mess that it gives you. Suddenly, that's no longer true. They now have six languages, and they're moving along to get all hundred. It, but Chinese is one of the was the first. You take a paragraph in English, put it in Google Translate it into Chinese, translate it back into English, and it's dead on. Oh my God! You know it can do literature. So um, these things are happening right now. Anyway, so now the question is we've got, um, you know, we just heard Ray Kurzweil, and there are a couple of key ideas there. One is to be able to think exponentially. We'll get back to that in a minute. That's sort of our topic today, you know, that, but let's think of our phones. So, okay, now we got these smartphones. Cool. And yeah, I can watch TV, I can uh, listen to books, I can telephone people. Uh, that's not it. You know, this is not a thing. It's a moment. Think of how uh, I got my first, I got the little clamshell uh, Motorola phone. It was so cool. I went, to, happened to go to, um, to uh, the computer electronics show, CES or whatever it is, or consumer electronics show, I guess it is in Las Vegas. I was lecturing somewhere. And I always heard about this show. And I said, eh, let's, instead of going straight back to New York, I'll stop in Las Vegas. I got the last rental car available at the airport. It was this giant Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln Town car. <laughs> and then, you know, I parked it illegally in a, in, a, in a spot in a parking lot, you know, like over in the grass because the parking lots were full. And it was like aircraft hangar. And, but then you go out across the street to the next aircraft, one after, like five of these, filled with stuff. So one of the things they unveiled there was this beautiful, cool, looks like a giant beetle, um, uh, Motorola flip phone. And it was like $1,500. So two years later, it was free with your two-year you know, contract. Uh, and I got one. I love that phone. I still have it you know, as a museum piece. Uh, but 
it stopped working. And because it was analog and the world had gone digital or something like that, this wouldn't work anymore. So, okay, I had to get a, I had to get a, a new phone. And so, okay, you know, it's time to get the, um, I got some digital phone. And I was happy with it. But then uh, Apple comes along with the iPhone. Well, I didn't bite. It's the iPhone 1, iPhone 2. The iPhone 3 finally actually worked. And now, uh, you know, with, uh, what is it, uh, G4, you can actually, it'll actually, <laughs> my iPhone 3 would be in a restaurant. i say, well, let me look that up on Wikipedia. Five minutes later, it'd say, is it there yet? You know, <laughs> that's how slow it was. Uh, but now with G4, it's really fast. So, but the point is, that's not it. You know, he said that these phones are, what did he say, a billion times more capable than the computers he worked with just a few years earlier when he was a student. Well, in 10 years, they'll be a billion times more capable again. What will our phones be doing when they're a billion times more powerful? Well, if you're smart enough to predict it, you can start a company. Um, And then, you know, following this, that means the uh Computers will be the size of blood cells. What does that mean? That there'll be millions of them floating around in our bloodstream. Uh, they'll be in our brains, linking into our neurons with the Library of Congress in them. Uh, he talked about 3D computing. What that means is our, our chips are flat. But what happens when you make them 100, 1,000, a million times of layers. They can't do that right now because the heat can't escape. It'll melt. (laughs) But when they solve that, uh, it's called 3D chips. They'll have those. And then you go, uh, then we get to quantum computing. They'll be billions of times more powerful than computers we have today. And then uh, go look at the most recent lecture by Neil Gershenfeld. He runs the Bits and Atoms program at MIT. Look look up what that's about. And he talks about the geometry of computing. Our computers are called, they're von Neumann machines. They're first based on Turing, Turing machine. But then the architecture that when they made the first computers at uh, University of Pennsylvania and at Princeton, von Neumann was involved in Princeton, the architecture of the computer, input, output, central processing unit, memory, uh, if you study computer science, you'll uh, you study all that. Well, the architecture of that was worked out by Johnny von Neumann, genius who, you know, died, unfortunately, young. And But is that what it should be? Or should we be on to new architectures? So Neil Gershenfeld talks about the geometry of these machines. Now, what's the point of all this? Well... Let's go to uh, the idea of um, abundance versus scarcity. And that was sort of where um, uh, Ray Kurzweil got us. And we as human beings have been involved with scarcity since we emerged as a species. But all of life has been. What Darwinian evolution is about, competition for resources that uh, we added DNA and mutations. But what Darwin said was uh, an animal has a litter. There are uh, six pups. 
in of whatever they are, lions or sheep or dogs or whatever. And each of them is slightly different. And one of them is a little more suited to get the food, uh, has bigger teeth or smaller teeth or whatever is more, you know, the beaks of the birds on the Galapagos Islands where he went uh, are more suited to cracking open the nut or reaching into the flower to get the to get the food, and that beak shape gets selected for. They they have more offspring. They survive more. The ones with the other beaks survive less. And over time, uh, we've selected for one over the other. That's due to scarcity. If there's unlimited food, all the beaks would be fine. But there's a limited amount of food. Only the best suited beak. Uh, is best suited. But what happens when you have an unlimited amount of, well, now we've approached abundance in information. You don't need an encyclopedia that not everybody can afford. You just log into Wikipedia. The more people that use Wikipedia, the cheaper, the better. So what does this imply for what our lives are going to be like so let's look at an example in business, and we have uh, one more clip. So there's a person, let me just introduce him. His name is um, Peter Diamandis. And Peter Diamandis is, uh, I'm going to pick on him a little bit. He's got an inferiority complex because he's short. So he wanted to be an astronaut. And he says, okay, he'll get a degree in engineering. He'll get a medical degree. He'll graduate first in his class. He gets he collects all these degrees. He's still too short to be an astronaut. Uh, so finally he said, fine, I'll build a space company. <laughs> no, I'll launch my own rockets. So uh, he created something called the X Prize, which was for the – it began a prize for the first company to successfully be able to go in – uh, regularly go into space. And then he launched something called Singularity University. And he got together with, guess who, Ray Kurzweil, to found a sort of um, a think tank for CEOs and uh, promoting these ideas. So let's see what they talk about at Singularity University. Good morning, everybody. We are living during the most extraordinary time ever in human history. And during our lifetime, during our lifetime, that we're about to see the transformation of the human race. Truly something that blows my mind every time I think about it. And the conversation I keep having with my colleagues, my friends, my investors, my community in Silicon Valley goes something like this. People have no idea how fast the world is changing. And I want to give you a sense of that because it fills me with awe and with extraordinary sense of responsibility for how we guide it, what we do with it. This is the computational power of our planet. And over the last 40 plus years from the 1980s to 2000, we were in a period of what I call deceptive growth, where the growth was slow. It was beginning to change us, but we didn't try to feel it yet. And then we enter a period of disruptive growth, where it's exploding onto the world. And you saw part of the implications from what Jeff Dean was saying. 
And the implications of that explosive disruptive growth is that we're plummeting the cost of bandwidth millions of times cheaper. Computational costs are dropping through the floor. The cost of memory is dropping through the floor. And global connectivity is exploding on this planet. Now, there are two implications I want to talk about during my presentation that are critically important. The first is that of abundance. And I had a chance to write a book called Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. And here are the facts. The per capita income for every nation on this planet has increased 300%. Our lifespan over the last 100 years has increased two and a half times. The cost of food has dropped 13-fold. Energies dropped 30-fold. And then on top of that, what we're seeing is the following. Literacy on this planet over the last 100 years going 12% to 88% across the globe. The cost of transportation going 100 times cheaper, the cost of communications going 1,000 times cheaper, and the cost of knowledge and information giving Google billions of times cheaper for every single person. For a child in Mumbai, having access to knowledge and information as good as the President of the United States had 20 or 30 years ago, a child, the poorest child in Mumbai in a smartphone, having access to the same knowledge and information that Larry Page has on Google. So, Besides creating this abundance and demonetizing the cost of living, what we're also seeing is we're about to see the transformation of the human race. And when I say that, we're going to change over the next few decades how we raise our children, how we govern ourselves, how we communicate person to person, how we employ ourselves, commerce, entertainment, and we're about to become a multi-planetary species. And here's the most amazing time, the thing. It's happening during our lifetime. It's happening during your lifetime. It's happening in the next 30 years. So don't blink. <laughs> so what's driving all this? This is Gordon Moore, one of the co-founders of Intel. He and his, and his partner started in 1958. And by 1965, Gordon Moore had noticed something on the chips that they were producing at Intel, the integrated circuits, and he noticed that the number of transistors per piece of silicon per dollar was roughly doubling every 12 to 18 months. And in 1965, he publishes this paper and he goes, you know, this is likely to continue, and it's been known as Moore's Law, and it's continued for 50 years. And I want to show you what that looks like. That's the first integrated circuit, 1958. Here we see two transistors, about a half-inch feature length on each. Let's fast forward to the first commercial product in 1971, the Intel 4004, 2,300 transistors, about a dollar each. Now, let's fast forward 45 years to Intel's i7 processor. Here we see a processor that is 330 billion times faster. When you want to understand why the world is getting faster, why we're able to do the things that we do, it's right here. It's that transformation, 330 billion times faster over the course of 45 years. But let me give you another visualization of what this looks like. Right? In 1956, this was a hard drive. <laughs> Five megabytes, $120,000, and if you happen to have your cargo airplane, you could move it from office to office. Now, we probably noticed when this happened. 2005, here's 128 megabytes for 99 bucks. 
Pretty extraordinary transformation. But did we notice this? When over the course of nine years, it went to 128 gigabytes right on schedule on Moore's Law for 99 bucks, a thousand times better. I'm an investor and an advisor in a nanotechnology company that's focused on doing this a billion times better again. Right? We're talking about all of Google's data centers in a sugar cube. And if you look at this, this is from my partner, Ray Kurzweil. He's a co-founder with myself at Singularity University. This is the computational growth plotted on a log scale over the last 110 years. And what we see here on this curve in five paradigms, the last of which is Moore's Law, what Ray calls this is the law of accelerating returns, that we're using faster computers to build faster computers to build faster computers, and it's not slowing down. We don't see World War I or World War II. We don't see boom times or recessions, right? And so if it's likely to continue, what you get is something pretty interesting. See, in 2023, seven years from now, the average computer we go and buy from Best Buy, if they're still around, is now calculating at 10 to the 16th cycles per second, which a neurophysiologist will tell you that's the rate which your brain does calculations. So what happens when you can buy a human brain for a thousand bucks? Well, it doesn't slow down, right? 25 years later, now a thousand bucks buys the computational power of the entire human race. <laughs> now your kid's homework gets really easy. <laughs> and what... So, that's uh, Peter Diamantes. So I've been talking today, start to wrap up, about <laughs> exponential growth. And we'll maybe do some more about this in future shows because there are two parts to this, one or three parts. One is, what is it? And one of the things is to, you know, uh, <laughs> I remember when I was in college and some of my buddies in another school were in Europe. And I was going to, they were there for the year and I was going to join them that summer. So we write letters back and forth. Let, you know, we have to coordinate. I had to pick up motorcycles in Munich. I have to meet them in Paris. Uh, what do I need to bring? What kind of motorcycle should I get? All that. And so, hmm. Uh, so we write letters, but we have to really pin this down. So <laughs> I, I said, okay, on, you know, Thursday at 7 p.m., uh, we're going to make a long-distance phone call from Philadelphia, where I was in school, to Paris. I had to warn my roommates. <laughs> I said, look, uh, we're going to keep it to one minute. There's going to be 20 bucks on the phone bill, which was a lot of money then. And don't worry, I'll take care of it. Uh, now, we Skype anywhere in the world for hours at a time, totally for free. So that's what he was talking about bandwidth. Now, what does that mean? What that mean is that's very well addressed in... in um, um, in the, in the book, The World is Flat, where he talks about something happened, and it all happened at the same time. Um, the Indians got free from socialism. Uh, Chinese got uh, free from uh, communism. They still have a dictatorship, but they can have a free, uh, free economy. And the Internet. And cheap, free, cheap, almost free bandwidth. So that means your call center can be in India. Uh, we're not happy about that. They're getting better. But 
it means that, uh, you know, <laughs> if it was $20 a minute to talk on the phone to India, you wouldn't have call centers in India. But you, you can. And then you got cheaper shipping. you got the containers. Uh, so you put these together and suddenly you have a global economy. Uh, so a key part of it was this uh, literally almost free bandwidth. You just don't. Well, it is. I mean, you, you pay a flat rate. But when you Skype uh, to Europe uh, for an hour, you don't pay anything extra for that. Now, one other thing I want to mention, and that is that. And I'll talk about this in future shows, something that these people don't talk about. And that is, is this really going to happen? You know, we have all this technology, but um, there's also human culture. There's also human beings. There's also what human beings do and don't want. So we'll talk about that in future shows. So wrapping up, this is uh, John Lobel. This is Visionaries. We're on prn.fm progressive radio network every monday at 10 o'clock new york time could be any time your time you can find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com and uh, this show will be up uh, shortly if you want to tell your friends about it and uh, next week something interesting week after that i'm going to have a special guest on talking about is the universe conscious? A lot of Buddhists would say that, but this guy happens to be a physicist, so uh, that's going to be fun. So let's wrap up and see you next week. 